Welcome to the Village Church Podcast Show. I'm Josh Patterson, joined here with JT English, who is the pastor of training here at the Village Church. Really looking forward to Episode 7. JT, we've got a, a really, what I think is going to be a great, great show, great time. We're going to uh, spend a few minutes here at the beginning talking about forums and talking about how we're going to utilize those here at the village. But specifically, uh, the show's really going to be geared around some of the cultural issues that the church is facing and the nation is facing. We're going to bring on Dr. Russell Moore to talk with us and help us navigate some of these issues. But as we as we think about what we're doing as a church, the village church, trying to navigate and talk about these things here with our membership, one of the things that we're going to introduce in the life of the body is uh, forums at the village. So talk to us just a little bit about those, what those are going to look like and some of the things that we have coming up. Absolutely, Josh. I'm really glad to be here uh, today with you and excited to talk about some training initiatives that are coming. Uh, so training at the Village Church is going to be a really broad ministry. We're going to try to do a lot of things just as it relates to discipleship and training and equipping people for ministry. One of the specific things we're going to be doing is forums. Forums are going to take a unique shape in the life of the church because they're going to be uh, really flexible. And what I what I mean when I say that is is we're going to be able to address topics that are relevant right. and that are coming up quickly and that and that uh, perhaps they're not going to be the same topic every single year, every semester, but it's something that the church needs to address this now. Right. So the forum allows us to bring in perhaps an expert from outside in the culture to come address our church about a topic that we think is really relevant and important for our people to be trained on. So the forum is, is something that we're able, to, in some sense, to be uh, responsive to. Exactly. So a need yeah, arises, exactly. there's a big cultural issue uh, that we want to address, mm-hmm. and it allows us to create a venue yeah. to really dive into that that may not um, that we may not have the space to do in the normal exactly. rhythm and routine in the life of the church. So talk about a couple of forms that we have coming up. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. And so when we do a form, what we're saying as pastors is we're saying this is an issue that our people need to be trained right. in. It. And we have a few of those that are coming up right. really quickly. The first one we have is April 15th. We're bringing in Sam Alberry. Sam is a friend of mine. He's a pastor over the United Kingdom. Uh, he's a theologian. He writes broadly, and he's gonna he's gonna he's written a book, and the book is called "Is God Anti-Gay?" Right. And he's gonna address our church specifically on that topic, answering the question and several questions around it: Is God homophobic? Right. Is God against gay people in some capacity? Sam uh, has a really unique ability to talk to this issue as a pastor foremost, and as a Christian foremost, he's also a man who experiences same-sex attraction himself. He doesn't identify himself that way, though. He's identified as a Christian, someone right. who submitted himself to biblical authority and to the sexual uh, ethic of Christianity, but is a man who can speak with a unique uh, authority uh, to this issue that I think would be really important for our church to hear. And so tell us again when the forum is. It's yeah. April 15th. April 15th from 7 to 9 p.m. We're going to actually be hosting Sam here that week. He'll be doing the forum from the Flowermont campus, but we believe that this is going to be such an important issue. We're going to be streaming this to all of our campuses. Right. So. If you're at the Plano campus, the Dallas campus, the Denton campus, anywhere, you can go there with your church body and hear Sam talk. Yeah, I'm, I'm real excited about this. He's also going to be preaching uh, yep. the, the weekend before, and yep. I'm excited uh, to have him here and yep. to host him and really to hear how the Spirit's going to use him to minister to us as we talk about this particular issue, which is that actually what we're going to talk about today yeah. with Dr. Russell Moore. Yep. And I think the difference between the two is is Dr. Moore today, where I hope we spend a lot of our time, is talking about it politically, culturally. What does it look like from the air? That's right. Uh, how are these challenges coming against the church? How does the church need to respond to be thoughtful in these areas, um, to be pastoral and care, careful and yeah. caring yeah. in these areas? 
And with Sam, I think we're going to take it to the ground a little bit more and mm-hmm. talk about how these issues are worked out in relationships and homes and families and things like That's that. Exactly. So I'm really excited just to kind of turn the segment even now and uh, welcome Dr. Moore to the program. Well, we are excited to be joined today by Dr. Russell Moore. Dr. Moore is the president of the Southern Baptist Convention's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Before joining the ERLC, Dr. Moore served as senior vice president for academic administration and dean of the School of Theology at Southern Seminary. Welcome to the podcast today, Dr. Moore. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me. We're glad you're here. Uh, So, Dr. Moore, today, one of the main topics we're talking about is just this sexual and moral revolution uh, that seems to be taking place in our country. Uh, And this is a topic that you have been uh, speaking on and writing on and and talking about in various venues. So we're glad you're going to be able to talk to us today about that. Specifically, one of the main uh, arguments that people are making is that, that gay marriage is basically this generation's civil rights issue. Can you speak to us a little bit about that? Well, I think in order for us to be able to engage our community on this issue, we have to understand that people do think that way, uh, that they do feel that way. And so in order to speak to them, we have to be able to understand the narrative that is going on in their minds. And so you're right that there are many people in American culture who see a parallel with the civil rights movement, uh, with uh, the change in what marriage is and the change in what sexuality is happening in our culture. Now, I don't think that's a a fair analogy morally, Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't think it's a fair analogy sociologically. Uh, but we have to understand that mindset if we're going to be able to to speak to people. I think what's really going on here is that we have a long-term project in American culture that sought to define sexuality as the expression of the individual, where sexuality is at the very core uh, of of my very identity. And by sexuality, mm-hmm. I don't just mean my my gender, which which is uh, God God created us with with gender, but that sexuality itself is who I am, so that I am the sum total of whatever my sexual desires are. And so the the idea then is if there's not expression of those sexual desires, then that means that that I am not able to be myself, because Mm -hmm. that's that's who I am. So that's a a different way of looking at what sexuality is uh, from the way that, for instance, the Christian Church has always looked at uh, sexuality. That's exactly right. one of the one of the major conversation pieces that we're going to be hearing over and over throughout this year is that the Supreme Court in January decided to uh, take on this case of whether same-sex marriage is a constitutional right. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and that process and how churches ought to be thinking about that? Yeah, I mean, what we have going on right now is that you have uh, you have a, a good deal a good deal of confusion across the country because you have uh, some states that have decided to recognize same-sex relationships as marriages. You have other states where the courts have imposed uh, that upon them. And then you have a a smaller group of states that still retain an understanding of marriage as the union of a man and a woman. So now this is going to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is going to decide this. And the Supreme Court really is looking at two questions. One question is, uh, should states that don't recognize same-sex marriage, do they have to recognize marriages that are done in other states? So if Ohio doesn't recognize same-sex marriage, but you have a couple who gets married in Massachusetts, does Ohio have to recognize them as, as married? And then the the other question, which is the bigger question, is whether or not the 14th Amendment in the Constitution requires 
a recognition of same-sex marriage. Right. And so that's, that's what's headed, headed um, with the court now. Uh, the, the problem is that last, uh, 2013, there was a decision done by the Supreme Court that sent two conflicting messages. Mm-hmm. Because on the one hand, the court said uh, the Defense of Marriage Act, which is the act that, that defined marriage as, as man and woman conjugal union nationally, it's unconstitutional because states are the ones who set the parameters of marriage. On the other hand, uh, the ruling talked about the fact that the only reason for privileging and recognizing marriage as the union of a man and a woman is hostility, in Justice Kennedy's words, animus mm-hmm. uh, toward gay and lesbian persons. So those are two two conflicting things. So it depends on what the, the court, which, which stream the court goes, goes with. If the court says states define this, uh, then that means one thing. If the court comes in and says, no, this is a fundamental human rights issue and civil rights issue, then the court's going to go in, 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 a, in a different direction altogether. And I think, I think, and I've been saying this for, the, for a long time, I think that churches need to be ready uh, for, even if the court doesn't impose uh, same-sex marriage on all 50 states, which I guess it will. I, my, my, my gut is that they will. But even if they didn't, uh, just looking at where the culture has gone on this, it is it is a long way down the road uh, mm-hmm. toward this anyway. Yeah, that that was going to be my follow up question to you. What what is your lean on this in, in terms of what you anticipate will happen? Um, do you think they'll they'll deal with the first issue about states being able to recognize unions in other states or marriages in other states, or do you think they'll they'll go about the route of the Fourteenth Amendment? I think they're I think they're going to do the whole thing, uh, and the reason for that is not only uh, Justice Kennedy's language in the 2013 uh, decision, but also uh, the court refused, for instance, to stay uh, a federal uh, judge's uh, edict in Alabama uh, that that uh, imposed same-sex marriage there. Normally what the court will do is come in and say, uh, okay, you're not going to issue these marriage licenses until we resolve the case in June. They didn't do that. They, they let it go, and they refused to take up all sorts of other cases, letting these uh, marriages uh, take place in these states. So I think that's where the court is going to land. And just looking at the way the culture's been going and looking at the way the judiciary's been going, this has been happening for a long time, mm-hmm. which is why you know I've been saying for years you can't assume that because you're in a red state, or you can't assume that because you're in a in a conservative community that this is somebody else's issue. This issue is going to is going to confront every single church and every single community, which means that we need to have churches who know how to articulate yes. a biblical vision of what sexuality is, a biblical vision of what marriage is. We can't just assume that uh, everyone understands what we're talking about. And there was a time when we could assume that most people knew what we meant when we said marriage. That's right. Um, even if they didn't live up to it, or even if they didn't want it, they understood what it was. Uh, and so you could come in, and a lot of churches, for instance, would use marriage as kind of the inroad uh, to get people to talk about uh, Jesus. So you, you say, mm-hmm. you know, hey, wouldn't you like to have a healthy marriage? Wouldn't you like to have a happy marriage? Uh, and everybody knew what we were talking about. Then you come in and say, you know, the gospel is able to empower you to have this have this healthy marriage. We can't assume that anymore. We've got to we've got to articulate what marriage is, what sexuality is, um, and, and then embody that in our congregations, and then speak to people in our congregations um, who are grappling with 
the sense of who they are and, and their, their, their sexual identification and their sexual expression. We've got to show them what it looks like for mm-hmm. them to follow Christ. That doesn't simply mean saying, defining what sin is in Scripture, although we do have to do that. And we have to be very clear about what Scripture teaches about that. But then we come in and say, okay, this is what it looks like for you to be a faithful, obedient follower of Christ. That's exactly right, and I think that's really, really helpful. One one thing that I want to—you've said some really, really helpful things, but tying some of this together as we think about the Supreme Court's ruling and perhaps the redefinition that might be coming to us here uh, later in the year— uh, one of the things that I think you've said really well on your blog and in several other sites is that the Supreme Court might be taking on a power that it doesn't have. Uh, they they never uh, were, the, were defining what the institution of marriage was in the first place. This is something that's been certainly defined by God. It's been, de- been defined biblically and articulated and embodied in the church. So as American Christians, as the Supreme Court perhaps takes on a responsibility that isn't theirs to take on in a sense, how should we be thinking about about what how that might happen and how what our response should be? response shouldn't be one of panic, and I think that that's what, um, that's what some Christians are, are want to do. And I've even talked to some just in recent days uh, who just see apocalypse uh, right. after the Supreme Court uh, decides this. Um, no, uh, we're, we're, we have a mission field. That's right. And, and we've always had a mission field. And so the, the sort of um, nostalgic, if we could just get back to 1950, but without mm. the segregated lunch counters, that is not a Christian response. Exactly. Uh, our response ought to be, look, this fell apart, not in the Supreme Court chambers, not at Woodstock. It fell apart in Eden. Amen. And we've word. always been dealing with human fallenness, and we've always been dealing with human fallenness at the level of sexuality and marriage. I mean, just look at Genesis. Uh, what happens? Uh, immediately after the fall, you have a disruption in marriage, and then you have a disruption in families that works its way all the way through the book of Genesis and then all the way through. So we shouldn't be wringing our hands or shaking our fists and thinking that we can scream our way back to Mayberry. That's we ought to say Mayberry was never really here anyway. This is our mission field, so let's come in with full conviction. Let's not be afraid of the culture around us. Let's not refuse to address issues that the culture doesn't want to address. That's not what it means to be the people of Christ. Mm. Um, and, and the worst thing that we can do for the people who disagree with us out there is to give them the impression that somehow we're afraid of them, that we're afraid of their marginalization, about being marginalized by them. We're afraid of being thought to be bigots by them. That, that's the most unloving thing that we can do, and it also will mean that the culture around us will have no respect for the church if the church can't speak honestly. If you can't, if you can't speak to me about earthly things, then how can you speak to me about heavenly things? Mm-hmm. So we keep our conviction. At the same time, we recognize this is the mission field that God has put us in. Mm-hmm. These, are the, these are the people that God has given to us as our mission field, so let's love them, speak honestly, but speak with a word-to-word reconciliation. Um, which means we don't freak out and we don't panic. And you know, one of the things that happens in the church is that uh, people tend to look around at whatever's going on in the culture at the time. They tend to say this is the worst sort of moral decline uh, that the church has ever faced. Every generation says that. That's right. No, <laughs> we're addressing we're addressing a post Eden fallen world, but the light comes into the darkness, and John 1, the darkness does not overcome it. Mm-hmm. I mean, so we ought to be the people who have a sense of confidence going forward because of that, but also because 
we really do understand what sexuality and uh, and marriage are all about, that this is embedded into the creation because it points to the gospel, which means that the things that our neighbors want, um, our gay and lesbian neighbors, they're not plotting somewhere in a, in a lair uh, to destroy everything. Most of them genuinely think that if they just have societal recognition uh, of marriage, that they're going to have what their parents or grandparents had. Hmm. The, the problem with that is not just that it's immoral. The problem is that it's impossible. Because what, what sexuality is, is not just nerve endings reacting to one another. And what marriage is, is not just companionship uh, of two people. It is instead something that is based upon that interaction of male and female that God has created. So we're going to wind up with a lot of really disappointed people. The sexual revolution always does that. Right. So we need to recognize that that this isn't going to be able to ultimately get very far. It's going to leave some burned over and disappointed people, and we need to be those who are ready to, to speak on the other end of that. Let me ask you this question, Dr. Moore. I mean, that's just fantastic insight. For, for the non-Christian, um, interacting with the Christian, uh, or the Christian who says, yeah, this is what I believe, but, but how in the world can I force on someone who doesn't believe like I do, who doesn't have the same um, fundamental ethic informed by the Christian faith that I have, how do I then uh, expect or force that uh, on somebody else? Uh, force what on somebody else? I mean, uh, when it comes to the issue of marriage, we're, we're, we all understand that marriage has some limits. Uh, you, you, we, we, no, matter, no matter what side we are on, on the same-sex marriage uh, issue, not every relationship is a marriage. Uh, and so everybody agrees that this is two people, and only two people. Right now everybody agrees on that, or most people agree on that, and that these two people need to be romantically and sexually involved with one another. What about two nuns that live together? Should, should they be able to get married uh, in order to get uh, Social Security benefits uh, together? Well, no. Uh, that, that Everyone would agree that's not a marriage. So we all agree that there's some limit to what marriage is, and we all also agree uh, that sexuality means something. I mean, everybody agrees at that point, even when they say they don't, uh, that sexuality has consequences. That's one of the reasons why uh, we're, we're spending so much time talking about sexual harassment, all sorts of other issues that have to do with sexuality. These are important issues that get at the very fiber of, of, of who we are. So we start with that understanding that we do understand there are some limits and there are some parameters, but then the question comes down to what should those limits and parameters be, and on what basis do we make that decision? Well, let me let me follow up on that. What informs those limits? For the Christian, I, I understand that. I understand that biblically those limits are informed by God Himself; that He yeah. has placed these parameters around marriage. But for the non-Christian who doesn't believe in the biblical witness, what what would inform those limitations? For the well, Christian, uh, there's a there's a conscience uh, that Romans two tells us is written written on the heart. So we have an understanding of what uh, God has designed. There's also the witness of nature and the witness of uh, of every human civilization uh, up to this point has recognized that there's something distinct about a man. There's something distinct about a woman, and there's something distinct about that union between the two. That that often, not in every case, but often results in children. Uh, so, so there is that, that witness that's there. The problem is that what uh, the culture around us is wanting to do now 
is they still have a an understanding of morality uh, as it relates to sexuality, but the morality is only consent. Yeah, and so right. two consenting adults. Now the the problem with that is that consent simply does not cover uh, everything that they will want to cover, uh, because you have all sorts of other conversations that then come up about, well, what, what about uh, consenting adults who have this feeling of love for one another? But society has, has reasons to say that's not morally right. That's really helpful, Dr. Moore. Uh, one thing is, uh, obviously, you know the Village Church is a church here in Dallas, and, and we are surrounded by other churches, uh, some of whom, and some of whom certainly nationally, even are in our own denomination and your denomination, are making the argument that there should be a third way, in some sense, and a new biblical hermeneutic that's adopted in the church really should capitulate in order to be relevant, in order to be able to, to earn a voice in other spheres of influence as it relates to morality or the biblical witness. How should we be interacting with those churches and thinking about about this new third way that they're proposing of capitulation in order to be relevant in contemporary society? Well, there really aren't that many of those uh, churches, actually, right. uh, because what, what we have happening is that there is a mainline Protestant uh, movement establishment in this country that is dying and withering away. Uh, that has, for the most part, already given up on these issues. And then there's an evangelical movement uh, that continues to stand uh, on what the Scripture teaches on these issues. And so what what I often am confronted by, not so much by pastors and churches, but by by non-churched journalists, is the idea, well, isn't it true that if you all don't give up on this issue, then you're going to lose your young people? Um, and the response to that is to say, first of all, if you look at young evangelicals, take out those who simply respond to the telephone uh, in, the, in the polling and say, you know, what are you? I'm Baptist, I'm Methodist, I'm uh, Catholic, I'm whatever. Whatever. That's, uh, that, that doesn't give you an accurate picture. Look at the people who actually go to church every week. Those are the people you ought to look at, and they have the exact same vision of sexuality uh, that the church has, has always held. The other issue is, if it were true that capitulating on the issue of uh, human sexuality would lead to church growth, then we ought to see a booming Episcopal church in this country. Uh, Instead, what we see is a dying uh, Episcopal church, a dying mainline. And why is that? It's because people understand when you're not telling them the truth. I mean, non-Christian people aren't idiots. They know how to read texts. They know what the Bible says, mm-hmm. and so uh, when when you hear people coming in and trying to put brackets and asterisks around not only selected texts in the Scripture, but the entire narrative of Scripture, starting with God creating man, uh, humanity as male and female from the very beginning, as Jesus says, and uniting them together in this union, all the way through to the very end of that unveiling of Christ in the church as a bride and a groom, People know how to read those texts. They they know what what this means. Um, And so we have to be the people who are able to say, we know this sounds offensive to you, but really uh, the entire thing ought to be offensive to you. And that's that's really the problem that that we find, is that for a long time American Christianity has assumed that we have the answers to get people to what they already want in terms of making it in American culture. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are all sorts of people in the New Testament who thought Jesus was the answer to making it in Roman culture. And every time that that happened, Jesus turned around and said, you don't understand what I'm talking about. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, unless you are crucified with me, you have no life in in you. 
so I think we have to just be ready to be with Jesus on that, and he'll take care of the rest of it. Let me ask you this, Dr. Moore. Uh, part of the narrative that has come out, and, and this phrase has been used uh, in court rulings and in publications and blogs, the idea of being on the wrong side of history. I'd love just to hear you uh, address that. Well, I mean, the idea is that history here is this um, this mystical force that is is moving in in some uh, in some direction that is really an impoverished view of what history uh, actually is and what history does. Mm-hmm. I mean, as Christians, uh, we understand that that history is going somewhere, but history is going somewhere in a way that is imperceptible. Uh, to human eyes. That, that's the reason why Jesus uses that image of um, of yeast working its way through bread, of a, a seed, a mustard seed is very small. No one sees it, but at the end, it, it becomes this mighty tree that all the birds of the air rest in. And so we have this understanding that history providentially is moving where God is taking it, but that often we can only see that through the eyes of faith. And so, I mean, the early Christians were uh, all thought they were on the uh, were all told they were on the wrong side of history right, of course yeah. they were uh because they're they're in a uh, they're in a situation where the most powerful empire in the world has set up uh, caesar worship and they're on the wrong side of that you, right. you can't adjudicate these things by looking at whatever is happening right now uh in in the world around us and then we we see examples um even even in more recent history the abolitionist movement uh, seemed to be on the wrong side of where history was going. Uh, the the pro-life movement is still going strong after 40 years. That's right. Uh, when everyone assumed that, that that issue would be long settled, and so we, we shouldn't become the sort of fatalists who who rest in uh, who rest in those sorts of understandings. That's a great word. That's really helpful, Dr. Moore. One one other question we've been wanting to ask you. Practically speaking, you, you've you've used the language of articulation and embodiment. I love that language. I think it's really, really helpful. But practically speaking, how can churches be places that we are articulating uh, a, a biblical ethic of sexuality and also mm-hmm. embodying a biblical ethic of, of human sexuality? Well, first thing we need to do is in terms of preaching and teaching, uh, talk about what the Scripture teaches about sexuality. Uh, but tell why. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when, when we're talking about not just the issue of homosexuality, but the issue of fornication, the issue of adultery, the issue of cohabitation, all of those issues, why are those things wrong in a Christian understanding of, of reality? Right. It's, because, it's because sexuality uh, preaches something. Sexu- the, the sexual union and the marital union is proclaiming something, mm-hmm. and that's the union of Christ and the Church, Ephesians chapter 5. Right. So we, we talk about why that is. We also spend a lot of time uh, speaking to various life situations within the Church, so that sometimes I think because most pastors, uh, in, in our tradition anyway, are married, uh, we tend to speak um, mostly to married people or to people who are going to be married, uh, and then just kind of throw in uh, singleness. Everyone, we need to have a we need to have a high view of singleness in the same way that the Apostle Paul does, in the same way that our Lord Jesus does, and speak to singles in our congregation, and also recognize that there's not there's not just one kind of single. So you've got one person who's not married. 
uh, but he wants to be married. He's he's praying to be married. He's preparing to be married. Well, we need to prepare him. Uh, then right. you've got s- someone else, and uh, she says, "I'm I'm single, and I think God has called me to a life of singleness. I'm not I'm not ever planning to be married. We need to speak to her." Then you've got someone else who is uh, is wrestling and battling with unwanted attractions and desires. We need to speak to him or her as well. And so I think we need to do that explicitly. And as we're doing that, making making clear that the gospel is for for all sorts of people, people facing all sorts of temptations, and and speak explicitly to all of those those things. Um, and then I think in terms of embodying, we need to make sure that in our congregations, first of all, there, there are a lot of people who are uh, gay and lesbian people who hear the gospel, they want to follow Christ, but they don't know what it would look like for them uh, to follow Christ. And what many of them assume is that following Christ means that they will die alone. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the, the church in the New Testament is not the place where all the families come and unload out of their minivans and sing together yes. and then get back in their minivans and go home. The church is a household of God. Amen. And so nobody dies alone. And so we need to, we need to say to those uh, gay and lesbian people, who hear the gospel and who are wanting to repent and to follow obediently what Jesus demands, which is fidelity, which means uh, not engaging in sexual immorality, that, that that doesn't mean that they are they are giving themselves over to a life of loneliness and isolation. They're coming into a household and a family, which means that we need to equip uh, others within the congregation to be able to, to minister. And one of the things that we tend to do when it comes to this issue and, and really to sexual issues across the board, is we do the opposite of what Galatians 6 teaches us. Uh, Galatians 6 says, let those of you who are, are strong bear up those who are weak. Well, the, the first problem we have is that we assume that there are some strong people and some weak people. Instead of realizing what the Scripture is teaching is that all of us are strong in some points and all of us are weak in some points. And so you're going to have one person who is who is bearing up a weak brother on one point, and then that may reverse, uh, you know, even in the same day, just depending on where the point of vulnerability is. But we tend to group people according to their weaknesses. So mm-hmm. if, if you have people who are, um, uh, are coming out of divorce, we put them all together in a, in a divorce recovery sort of a situation. Or if you have people who have same-sex attraction, we put them all together in a same-sex attraction sort of uh, support group. Or people who are going through infertility, we put them all together in an infertility support group. Instead of coming in and saying, no, 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 we need, we need those who are strong at this point to bear up and to minister to those who are weak at this point. That's right. And so embodying it means that we're not freaked out by the sorts of temptations and the sorts of, of, of past storylines that people have. We recognize that we all have a storyline, and we all have points of vulnerability, and we minister to one another. That's great. Well, Dr. Moore, we're so thankful for the time that you've afforded us today, and and I know that it's been helpful for both JT and I, and it's going to be helpful not only for the Village Church, but for the greater church uh, who listens to this. And and I do just want to say thank you uh, for your work and the work of your team at the ERLC. You guys have been a tremendous blessing to our church and many churches, and so we we just pray God's richest blessing on you guys and, and the work that you're involved in. And so thank you, thank you, thank you very much. Well, thank you. It's good to talk to you all today. Yes, sir.
Talk to you soon. And for those of you listening, we're grateful for the time that you spent with us this afternoon or morning or whenever you're listening. And uh, we look forward to the next show. 